It's The World This Week. The World This Week in partnership with The Daily Beast. Uh, joining us from New York City, Noor Ibrahim, international news editor of The Daily Beast. Uh, how are things in Gotham? Very good. Thank you. How are things in Paris? <laughs> things in Paris are rainy, but uh, we'll get to that, I, I suppose, uh, in a moment with Vivian Walt, a Paris correspondent for Time magazine. How have you been? Not too bad. Not too bad. How's Vladislav Davidson, uh, the author of Odessa, uh, from Odessa with Love, a journalist, and at the Atlantic Council? How are things? Great. Getting ready for the Cannes Film Festival. Getting ready for the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, from Brussels, Dave Clark, news editor at the French news agency AFP. Dave, uh, Tuesday you were in Kiev, uh, the day a 32-year-old video journalist Armand Soldin uh, was killed in Ukraine by Russian rocket fire near the front lines in the east. Uh, he seemed like just, you know, a, a great guy as well as a, a dedicated journalist. From everyone here and to all your colleagues around the globe at AFP, we want to really offer our deepest condolences at this moment. Uh, th thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Francois. We will we'll miss him greatly. Uh, I'll, I'll miss him. Uh, we spent the first four or five weeks of the war together in, uh, in Kiev, and uh, I was due to join him again uh, next month uh, in, uh, in Ukraine. To, uh, to head to the front line where he's been more or less working since September flat out. Uh, it's uh, one of the most terrible moments in, in my long career in uh, uh, foreign correspondentry and uh, uh, it's going it's, it's to mark, mark the coverage uh, 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 of this war for us, I think. AFP, which, uh, whose video team does a fantastic job uh, covering uh, uh, the war in Ukraine. And we'll be talking more about it uh, coming up. Um, first, though, let's begin with Turkey. A final rally for a nail-biting finish in Istanbul, back where he started out as mayor, Turkey's leader of two decades, trailing in the polls, but within the margin of error, Recep Tayyip Erdogan facing high inflation anger surrounding February's devastating earthquakes and an opposition that's, well, coalesced. Uh, Kemal Kilic Darulu, bo boosted by the 11th hour withdrawal. Here you see him in Ankara uh, on this final Friday of campaigning. The 11th hour withdrawal of 2018 runner-up Morem Inje, who's running this time as a third-party candidate. He'd seen his support fade to naught and Thursday threw in the towel. I'm withdrawing my name from the presidential candidacy. I'm withdrawing from the race. I'm doing this for my country. I tried to provide a new channel for the voters, but I failed. If the opposition loses the election, they will blame us. Let's not give them any excuses. And of course, this has everyone taking their calculators. I didn't formally endorse there uh, the opposition leader, but it seems like it's mathematical, Vladislav Davidson. Uh, uh, what with the latest polls, I don't know how reliable polls are. There's so many variables, but still, yeah. uh, saying that these are votes that possibly, probably could go to Kemal Kilic Darul. You know, it looked like Erdogan was just going to get through again, not with, with a more difficult election this time than the previous few times, but 
now it's really looking like this could be the one time that that things could really go in the direction of the opposition. I didn't, you know, I, I always think that he's one of these uh, strong men who's in there forever for 20, 30, 40 years. But it, it really looks like uh, the cards are really breaking against him on this one. They're breaking against him for now. We'll see if it's one round or two. Now, compounding Injay's woes were rumors of a sex tape and a day after Russia's foreign minister wished Turkey good luck and an election free of, quote, any external influence. Uh, Kemal Kilic Doroglu pointing the finger squarely at Moscow. The CHP leader uh, never directly referring to Injay, but stating in a tweet that was in both Turkish and Russian, Dear Russian friends, you're behind the montages, conspiracies, deep fakes, and tapes that were exposed in this country yesterday. If you want our friendship to continue after May 15th, do not touch the Turkish state. We will always defend cooperation and friendship, though, he, he adds at the end to, to, to temper that. He doubled down in an interview with the Reuters news agency this Friday saying, yeah, Russia's interfering. He did, but he didn't actually bring to the table much hard evidence. And that I think that's the problem. Um, I think everybody was expecting that Russia would kind of interfere with this election. There's a lot riding on it for Russia. They very much want Erdogan to stay in power. It's a, a, a somewhat ally of theirs, although Turkey is in NATO. It's kind of treaded this very ambiguous line with the, with Russia throughout the war. Um, you know, if Erdogan loses this election, um, Moscow, in a way, has to kind of reconfigure its alliance completely. And uh, it's uncertain where that's going to leave it. Of course, for the time being, um, uh, we've heard statements from Kilic Dorolu saying he'll, he'll keep the channels open uh, with, uh, with Moscow. Uh, now, on the campaign trail this Friday, Erdogan also accusing foreign powers of scuttling uh, the uh, candidacy of that third-party candidate, uh, Muharrem Ince. But it doesn't sound like he's referring to Russia. Instead, the president speaks of powers that also use the same Gulenists who tried to topple him in the failed 2016 coup. Mr. Kemal used that power as a toy and hatch a plot against Inche via FETO. It is the same that power also insults Turkey's national interests on foreign social media platforms. Kilic Darulu dragged all institutions and parties to bankruptcy under his authorization before he is directed from outside as a toy. Uh, Dave Clark, your reaction listening to all of that? Well, I think everybody involved in the Turkish election likes to blame things on, uh, on foreign powers. It's difficult to see what uh, what the foreign powers that Erdogan has in mind would have to gain from uh, uh, in, interfe interfering uh, at, the, at this stage. Because uh, we, without knowing exactly who's going to win, we don't know who we have to be friends with afterwards. Um, I think here in, here in Brussels, people are watching it uh, very closely, but uh, uh, it's not as it's not exactly uh, as clear uh, cut a, a, a decision they have to make uh, as to who to support as you as you might imagine. 
Obviously, there's been a lot of uh, bad blood between uh, Erdogan and various European leaders uh, and uh, uh, the European Union itself uh, over the years. Uh, but uh, the, Europe has been quietly uh, reassured that they haven't had to advance on uh, Turkey's European uh, membership application for you know for decades now because uh, it's easy to say no to Erdogan. But if uh, if Kılıçdaroğlu arrives with a uh, nominally more uh, pro-European uh, power, it's going to be uh, harder to tell him no when uh, he attempts to move towards uh, closer ties. Nor Ibrahim, your, your thoughts on, on the stakes of this election, uh, uh, particularly, is it, is it again about whether Turkey f turns more towards Europe, turns, uh, st stays in this sort of pivot role between Russia, the EU, and the Middle East? Absolutely. I think this is an unprecedented situation for Erdogan. I think that there's just so much at stake. And, and you know, obviously the earthquake played a huge role. But I think besides that, um, so many Turkish people, particularly the younger population, are just kind of sick, sick and tired of his strongman tendencies, of his crackdowns on dissent. Um, I think there is a desire for this rehabilitation of, of Turkey's um, image around the world to more reflect uh, that population and, and the, open the openness that, uh, that, they, that they want their country to, in, to move in that direction. Um, I think that he has every reason to be worried. And, and of course, that's exactly what's at stake. Um, uh, I think we had we had an article in the Daily Beast one once from Craig Capetus where um, he spoke to many sources that were uh, quite close to um, NATO officials who described Turkey um, under Erdogan as as the most cursed uh, NATO member. Um, so I think this the outcome of this election will absolutely play you know a massive role in rehabilitating that image, but um, also translating it into. Um, actual policy and, and closeness with um, other uh, member allies in NATO and, and, and the EU. Yeah, you point uh, there's to, just so much at stake here. You point to how the youth will vote, 5 million first-time voters in this election. How will earthquake victims vote if they're able to vote? All parties working furiously to try to bus citizens to their polling stations, even if they've been displaced to other neighborhoods or even other cities. In quake-devastated places like Antakya, uh, there is a fair amount of confusion. The closest polling station is five minutes away, but they're sending me to a school that's an hour away on foot. I have no car, I'm in financial distress and we cannot work. We will gladly vote with God's permission and we hope for the best. My whole family, all our relatives will vote. So plenty of uh, unknowns are heading towards towards election day. Absolutely, and, and the selection is really overshadowed by the earthquake, which was just a couple of months ago. Um, yet, like more than fifty thousand people died, and um, untold numbers left homeless, and it really kind of exposed Erdogan's uh, cor the corruption of the entire system. You had buildings where the, you know, the regulations being completely um, ignored and, uh, you know, 
people who were in favour with the government were allowed to do whatever they wanted. And then after the earthquake, the tremendous failings of the rescue and relief operations. Um, and it, it really kind of showed a kind of hollowing out of government institutions under Erdogan's become increasingly a kind of ideological power. Um, but does that mean that earthquake victims will go against him? Not necessarily. Yeah, another one of those unknowns. Now, across the Black Sea, uh, it's uh, they're bracing uh, for battle, that uh, counter-offensive uh, in uh, Ukraine. Uh, and it's been a startling week of competing narratives. With so much of Russia's military at the front, Red Square Tuesday saw a scaled-down May 9th Victory Day parade, although... Vladimir Putin did manage to convince leaders of seven uh, former states. There you see Armenia's Nikol Pashinyan uh, to, to, to drop in. Uh, some like Pashinyan, uh, Vladislav Davidson, who've been keeping their, trying to keep their distance from Vladimir Putin. Yeah. Last year, if I remember correctly, it was only two. Uh, I, think, I think it was just... Uh, I think it was just Lukashenko and and Putin. I think maybe uh, maybe it was the the Kazakh uh, leader also. But certainly I, I, he's up four or five leaders since last year. There were almost no tanks on the front. The Ukrainians were uh, on the on the on the red on red square red square front on that front uh, because they were all on the other front. And the Ukrainians uh, having uh, kind of made uh, discreet warnings that they that they could make uh, problems during the parade. The Russians had just one single T-34 from... You think it was Ukrainians who sent those drones last I week hope, over I the Kremlin? Because so. <laughs> it could be Russian dissidents, it could, it could, be, it could be anything. It could be Belarus dissidents, it could be internal uh, Russian dissidents. It, hmm. I, I, I certainly don't think... I'm not one of these people who thinks it's a false flag operation. It's an embarrassing thing for the Kremlin. If they can, if they can fly a drone into the Kremlin, that means the, 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 the Russian air defenses don't mean anything. So I, I, I hope it was the Ukrainians, but who knows? All right. And the, the usual talking points, Vladimir Putin talking about uh, a, a war being waged uh, against uh, Russia, still calling it a special military operation, though, when it comes to Ukraine itself. May the 9th in Moscow. May the 9th in Kiev, where the president of the EU commission came to celebrate Europe Day alongside the president of candidate state uh, Ukraine. Uh, Dave Clark, you were there. What was the mood like? Uh, the the mood. I was surprised by Zelensky's demeanor. He was uh, he was grim, but uh, uh, I suppose he's often grim now. The war's been dragging on for uh, for a year, and the Ukrainians are worried that too much is hanging on this uh, long anticipated uh, offensive that they're supposed to launch in the east. They're worried that. Uh, Western support will d depend on them making uh, spectacular breakthroughs when uh, it's not far from clear whether they can quickly uh, uh, gain a lot, of, a lot of ground. They can maybe reverse the narrative a bit, but they are uh, tending to manage expectations a little as regards the, the imminent military successes. You know, they've, they've did very well in, towards the tail end of last year, October, November, when they uh, evicted the Russians from, uh, from Kharkiv and from uh, Kherson. But uh, now they'll be coming up against battle lines, some of which have been in place and barely moved since 2014. Uh, and you can just see in the Battle of Bakhmut where the Russians have thrown thousands of, uh, 
uh, of troops and mercenaries into, uh, into the fight and barely gained uh, more than a few kilometers, although they have taken now uh, majority of the, of the city. And uh, today we hear that they're being rolled back, you know, by a few hundred yards uh, here and there. there. There's a concern that the war will turn into a stalemate. So this week's meeting, um, uh, this week's meeting in Kiev was about the political messaging about uh, Ukraine's European future, uh, about its future as a, one day as a member of the European Union. Uh, and the European officials that I traveled with to Kiev are, are convinced that uh, the Ukrainians are taking this extremely seriously, uh, that they want to begin accession negotiations, formal accession negotiations this year. And uh, it will depend whether they can convince Ursula von der Leyen's European Commission to issue a positive report uh, on that to the member states, some of which are more skeptical than others. Yeah, there, there are others who've been waiting in line a while to, to join the EU. We'll see how that, how that plays out. And as you were saying, as we wait for I'm this... I'm told it's not a queue, though. They can, they, can, they can go past some of them. I see. Well, it's not a, it's not a taxi rank. They can, Ukraine can get ahead of others. All right, we'll, we'll ask the Macedonians, for instance, how they feel about all that. Uh, we, 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 as we wait for Ukraine's much vaunted counteroffensive, lots of focus on the flashpoint city of Bakhmut, which has been likened to the World War I... Uh, battle of Verdun. The leader of the Wagner paramilitaries has certainly stepped out of the shadows with this fight. Hardly a day goes by without Yevgeny Prigozhin issuing an outburst against uh, the West, but also the Russian defense ministry and the regular army. Happy grandfather, an effing moron. There's lots of bad language here. Who's happy grandfather? Vladimir Putin, clearly. You think it's Vladimir Putin? I would think so, yes. I, uh, I, I actually am on the fence. I think he actually means Gerasimov and or Shoigu, but he is saying... The head of the military and the defense yeah, minister. I think he's saying it in such a, a discreet way that different people can read different people into the role of a happy grandfather. I think that's a- ambiguous for reason. Nor Ibrahim, uh, your thoughts on this? I agree completely. I think it's ambiguous for a reason. And I think everything that he says is quite calculated and uh, it's meant to draw attention. It's meant to create some controversy. Um, And this is just developing into a huge problem for the Kremlin because it's not just, you know, these random outbursts or videos that he's putting out. But uh, every time, you know, the Kremlin comes with uh, reports, a major battlefield update like today, there's talk of um, Russian forces retreating from certain positions in Bakhmut, and the Kremlin framed that as, okay, we're, ju- we're just regrouping, we're regrouping and, and uh, measuring things. And almost immediately, Prigozhin uh, went out and said, this is no regrouping, this is, this is flight, where they're just fleeing. Um, so it's gotten to the point where he's almost live fact-checking um, like the official Russian report. And that's just an incredible 
uh, position uh, to be in and, and quite embarrassing for Russia because this is this is someone who makes headlines around the world. Mm. He's a prominent figure. People are listening to what he's saying. Um, and beyond that, there's a lot of Russians uh, within um, inside Russia that that are quite big fans of Prigozhin as well. So, uh, so it's it's really fascinating to watch this dynamic play out uh, and the tension and just no holes barred at this point um, in terms of, you know, the clashes between Moscow and, and, and the shadow army. Dave Clark, is this uh, vying for some more power or is this simply trying to get the boss's attention? Well, I would have... Uh I would have disagreed with Nero a few weeks ago. I, I, my initial take on the, the counter-narrative from uh, Prigozhin was that, that Putin would be co fairly uh, comfortable to see all of his various lieutenants, uh, shadow or otherwise, fighting in public because he's the, ultimately the audience for that and he gets to decide it. Uh, uh, but, uh, as Nero says, the, it's, come to, it's got to a fairly extreme point now where it may be doing uh, more harm, uh, Prigozhin, more harm than good in the in the in the boss's eyes, and it seems to be that he wanted to claim the the victory in Bakhmut, uh, and that uh, he blames the uh, the defense ministry for not supplying him enough ammunition to get that. But it's not clear whether the Russian military has enough uh, has enough munitions in that area anyway. They've uh, been firing a lot, and uh, they've also been suffering quite a lot of losses in terms of ammunition dumps and. And supply, and supply chain. So, um, yeah, no, at this stage, uh, it, it does seem to be a, a problem for the Kremlin. Yeah, the, 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 the mercenaries of Wagner, who are not so formidable, it seems, on, on the battlefield, uh, but uh, their name has come up in conversation elsewhere. This Friday, the United Nations Human Rights Commission laying blame at, at the, the door of Mali's junta for the March 2022 massacre of some 500 civilians in central Mali, Malian soldiers, but not only. Our report concluded that there are strong indications that more than 500 people were killed. The vast majority executed by Malian troops and foreign military personnel during a five-day military operation in March 2022. The UN report does not specify nationalities, but these armed white men, everybody believes those are Russians. Correct. And there has been a lot of reporting in the last six months or so, perhaps the last year, about uh, the Wagner Group's the Wagner mercenaries' um, involvement in Africa, not only in Mali. Um, and, uh, you know, this is actually an incredibly worrying thing because you have all these local wars that have been going on for almost as long as the Ukraine conflict has been going on. Um, and that, in some ways, almost impossible to kind of overcome in some regular international peace treaty or peace mission um, unless one can actually understand who's involved. Now, the original remit of Wagner is to go to places where there's gold, where there's diamonds, and uh, act as a little bit of a cash cow for the Kremlin. Sure. Uh, can uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, if he's overstretched, go back to his uh, former post now? 
So that's the thing. A lot of a lot of my friends and colleagues in my in my line of work in the in the Russia Ukraine hand game, we all think that he uh, burned through a lot of his troops and he basically doesn't have the cadres left uh, in order to continue uh, dominating these little African countries. These these, uh, these poor little African countries where. where, where there shouldn't be Russians, uh, and that he doesn't have the manpower uh, in order to continue making money. So he's thinking, well, I, ha- I have to get out of here with some of my cadres intact, and if I don't uh, pull out of Bakhmut now, I'll have nobody to send to Syria or nobody to send to to, uh, to Sudan or wherever, right? And uh, you know, it's it's a big problem for him. He's burned through all the all the conscripts that they sent his way and all the all the guys that they took out of the prisons he does have a core of very professional former russian army mercenaries who are very who are very good at what they do which is killing but there's not that many of them and they had to sacrifice a lot of them against entrenched ukrainian artillery positions so if the numbers that we're hearing from western intelligence and ukrainian intelligence are correct i mean how many how many guys could he have left Mm. Well, the spillover from Russia's war in Ukraine is uh, certainly being felt uh, a hemisphere away. On Thursday, the U.S. ambassador to South Africa said he was confident that a Russian ship uploaded weapons from the Simonstown naval base back in December. That sparked uh, a denial from the president and his government. Still, though, Cyril Ramaphosa ordering an inquiry and the State Department in Washington standing by the story of uh, its man in Pretoria. The U.S. uh, has serious concerns about the docking of a sanctioned Russian cargo vessel at a South African naval port uh, in December of last year. And as good partners do, uh, we have raised those concerns directly uh, with multiple South African officials. Uh, Vivian Waltz, lots of denials. Does the story seem plausible, though? Yes, absolutely. Um, My gut instinct tells me it's correct. Um, South Africa has a lot of um, allegiance and a lot of ties to Russia, which it doesn't see the motivation to abandon at this point um, because of the Ukraine war. Um, there, There is the kind of grouping of the so-called BRICS grouping, which includes you know, China, Russia, India, and South Africa, um, where you know people... Um, have a lot of, uh, not exactly sympathy, but they see in Russia a kind of alternative path from, you know, U.S. superpower. Um, There's visa-free travel, for example, between the two countries. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, friendship um, that is good. How do ordinary South Africans feel about it, though? Do they... I think many of them... um, quite like Russia. This is a, a lot of historic links. Because um, they supported the ANC. Absolutely, yeah. You have, um, you know, Russia as your old kind of liberation ally. And that has really continued one or two generations later. Dave Clark, it's the second time we've had a May 9th now since uh, the all-out invasion by Vladimir Putin. A year ago, we were predicting that non-aligned countries like South Africa would have to eventually uh, pick their side in this battle. Uh, And yet, here we are a year later, um, still wondering uh, whether uh, the uh, allies or partners uh, are are ready to go all in for one side or the other. 
Well, yes, and that's further complicated by the other uh, elephant in the room, which is China. Uh, the uh, obviously a lot of the uh, non-aligned powers, a lot of this, a lot, of, a lot of the southern powers, uh, South Africa, as Vivian just just mentioned, uh, had closer, uh, warmer relations with, with Russia than uh, than Western powers did. And I think there was an, uh, there was a naive assumption among many people uh, here in Europe and, uh, and perhaps in Washington as well at the start of this conflict that Russia's uh, you know, aggression and a fragrant breach of, uh, uh, of Ukraine's sovereignty would lead the rest of the world to fall in behind the campaign against him. But it's not seen like that in many other capitals. Uh, I know, note today that whereas South Africa is, uh, has denied the weapons shipment story, the Kremlin has announced that Ramaphosa and Putin have agreed to further intensify mutually beneficial ties in various fields. Um, and... In asking the rest of the world just to fall in uh, behind the uh, West's support uh, for Ukraine, we're also forgetting that they'll be looking to see which way China uh, goes on this, which way India goes on this. Uh, and in terms of their economies, it, their ties are not, just with, uh, are not just with the West. Noor Ibrahim, it's, a, it's about uh, being able to sit the fence until there's another election in a year and a half's time where you are. Sorry, Francois, I didn't quite catch that. Is it about waiting a year and a half until there's another election in the hopes for those who support Russia that uh, Donald Trump will be the victor? I mean, there's, there's absolutely a real fear of that. And look, the South Africa thing is a great example. Um, some countries are still dealing with Russia openly, shamelessly, not paying any um, attention uh, to what's happening uh, in Ukraine and, you know, the alleged war crimes and all of that. But at the same time, um, a country like South Africa or other um, places could also just be working in the shadows and, and, and doing, um, you know, underhanded dealings without publicizing them. And I'm sure that's happened um, with other parties, not just South Africa. So um, I think that there is a real chance that, you know, the fatigue of war... Uh, the headlines dying down, that's a, that's a very real fear. And um, it's just, it's important to also note that um, what we, what a country does say, you know, or what a president or government official does say publicly um, isn't exactly how it's going to play out. Um, even when it comes to something like Putin's uh, arrest uh, warrant uh, under the ICC. I mean, there was a big report that came out in a major South African newspaper that uh, behind the scenes, um, government officials were trying to, you know, quietly beg Putin not to come because they didn't want to, you know, even risk having to be obliged to arrest him if he steps foot in the country. So I think that's just really important context to keep in mind. Yeah, how, things won't necessarily play out the way they do. They, they're expected. Uh, relations, uh, are, are tense relations uh, could take a turn for the much worse or for the better. It's difficult to, uh, at this point, uh, get perspective on uh, why Iran, and this is breaking news, has decided uh, to release two French citizens, Paris 
uh, contends uh, that uh, there are five others uh, being uh, held in what it's referred to in the past as hostage diplomacy. France 24's Andrew Hillier is at the uh, Le Bourget Airport uh, north of the capital. Uh, those two uh, French nationals uh, released uh, by uh, Tehran. Yeah, that's right, Francois. We are at Le Bourget Airport, just north of the French capital. Uh, Benjamin Briere and Bernard Felon uh, touching down uh, in the last few minutes. We saw the plane touch down just behind us. Uh, we already got reaction from French President uh, Emmanuel Macron early in the day, tweeting uh, that uh, both men can uh, finally reunite with their loved ones. He said it was a relief. Uh, Iran uh, calling uh, those releases a humanitarian act uh, in, in line with relevant laws and regulations. Now, just to give you a bit more context, about uh, these two men. Fillon, who is uh, a dual French-Irish uh, uh, national uh, detained in uh, March. Uh, he was detained on the pretext of uh, providing information to another country. You have to obviously bear in mind that uh, his detention uh, happening amidst those ongoing uh, anti-government demonstrations uh, in Iran. And then uh, Benjamin Briere, uh, he's be he'd been detained uh, since uh, May 2020, so he spent uh, three years behind bars. Uh, he was he had been accused uh, by Iran of flying a remote-controlled mini-helicopter to obtain uh, images uh, near Iran's border with Turkmenistan. Uh, of course, both men had been going on hunger strike in protest, so lots of concerns about their health conditions from their families. But uh, uh, the end of, uh, uh, of, of ha what has been obviously quite a difficult ordeal uh, for both men uh, this evening uh, at uh, Le Bourget. All right, we'll see whether, uh, what it leads to, whether they're... Uh uh, what is the counterpart uh, of that? Uh, many thanks, Andrew Hillier, for that live update. Uh, now, uh, we're wondering about counterparts and what are sweeteners uh, for deals. We've seen uh, how uh, in the uh, United States there's been, uh, I guess, uh, Joe Biden putting forth uh, a green America first. What with uh, uh, the uh, uh, there's been his uh, plan for uh, big uh, energy subsidies. Earlier, the French president traveling to Dunkirk in uh, northern France, uh, uh, a Rust Belt city for the launch of a giant battery factory with a Taiwanese group called uh, Prologium, another by a Chinese maker, XTC. Uh, the same day, Sweden's Northvolt announcing its own gigafactory in northern Germany. Music to the ears of uh, uh, that country's car industry, Northvolt, still contemplating another factory in uh, North America. It'll be interesting to see what kind of sweeteners France and Germany uh, bring uh, to those two deals. Uh, Vivian Walt, this is a story I know you've been following uh, closely. The head of that uh, Taiwanese company, the French head, saying, yes, there was, there were, um, I think the words he used were incentives, but he didn't want to go into specifics because it's got to pass muster with regulators. Exactly. And I think this is the problem. And in fact, you know, this week I was in Germany and a couple of days ago was in the Bundestag talking to people about um, the Inflation, Inflation Reduction Act in Washington and what needed to happen in Germany. So um, as with each... So we're into a new era of protectionism? Absolutely. But I think, and this is the message I heard in Berlin, um, is there's tremendous concern, obviously, about um, the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, which is $430 billion incentives, huge tax breaks for 
people setting up production in the US of things like batteries, all sorts of green tech. And in fact, Northvolt, as you, as you mentioned, is, I thought, more than just contemplating, but actually is planning a big production plant in somewhere in the US. Um, uh, as is, you know, a number of other people who were going to set up in the U EU and now have decided to relocate a lot of the production, including Tesla, for example, which obviously has poured billions into Germany. Um, it's got a big gigafactory just outside of Berlin. Enormous gigafactory, vast, um, mm. and was going to have a vast battery factory and is now going to relocate much of that production to the US. So the message I got in Berlin was, you know, we can offer all the sweeteners, we, we can, you know, afford to give, but it has to happen on the EU level. All right. and, and when it comes to Brussels, by the way, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, raising the hackles of environmentalists on Thursday, he told an audience of business leaders, um, enough with, these pe with this pesky red tape. I'm calling for a pause in European regulations. Now is the time to implement rules. We shouldn't make new changes because we'll lose all the actors. We need stability. Right now we need to speed up deployment because otherwise the risk in the end is to be the best in terms of regulation and the worst said in terms of financing. No time for environmental regulation, Dave Clark. Well, just as Vivian was saying that the Americans had underestimated the fury in Europe about the, uh, uh, about the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, I think uh, Manuel Macron might have uh, underestimated uh, how much uh, how the, he would ruffle feathers here in Brussels with, with that comment. Uh, uh, they've attempted to row it back slightly since, insisting that the existing Green Deal policies can obviously uh, still go ahead and pass. Uh, uh, and Emmanuel Macron's party in the European Parliament here uh, largely still, support, still supports them. But uh, it was seen as a, uh, as a rare uh, Eurosceptic, shall we say, moment from uh, the most famously uh, pro-European president they've had in France for, uh, for a while. Um, it, it's, uh, uh, I know the Elysee was annoyed that uh, it's, uh, so much attention was paid to that particular part of his speech. Uh, because broadly, you know, France wants an industrial policy, that's uh, not a scoop. Uh, but uh, Joe Biden is, uh, has given them uh, the best alibi ever. And uh, as Vivian says, you know, many other people in Europe are now falling in, uh, falling in behind this, uh, this idea that we're in the, we have to compete with U.S. subsidies and uh, China's low costs. Okay, before we go, by the way. Reindustrialize the continent. Before we go, and uh, it's that time of the year when a whole continent, this one, indulges in a special kind of guilty pleasure. Eurovision Song Contest weekend, Dateline, Liverpool by the Banks of the Mersey, the home of the Beatles decked out in a lot of blue and yellow, by the way. That's because last year's winner, Ukraine, is not in a position to be uh, hosting song contests. Um, the Eurovision Song Contest didn't used to be uh, so political, but in times of war. Uh, first off, Noor Ibrahim. How much attention is paid to the Eurovision Song Contest where you are? Have you ever 
uh, set eyes on this spectacle? Uh, I haven't. I've, I've watched a few clips here and there, but my guess would be most people here are not very uh, plugged in. But I don't want to speak for everyone. That's just the people it, <laughs> that it, I know. Uh, but it, I'm definitely open to it. I think I'd, yeah. You're open to it. Okay. How about you, Vladislav Davidson? Uh, well, I live, I live in Europe, but I, I have a reputation as a, as a uh, snob to to keep up so like i won't admit to watching it but of course i have and i always cheer for my team which is the ukrainians but this year the the moldovans uh, who are of course also in the middle of uh, problems with russia and russia's trying to get coup d'etats going in moldova so i cheer for them also because you know i'm also from odessa and they're 70 does, kilometers away does any of this have to do with music i know i don't care about any of it i only care about like to the extent that i care about like a football team or preparation other kinds of preparation for war but the the clip of the moldovans uh with their pagan ensembles i like the pagan aspect of the moldovan uh team this year but again i use the word team admittedly i couldn't care less about the music only about the politics and the war whereas uh the uh, the uh, uh clark household will be uh fully embedded for for the for, for all of saturday night correct Uh, Saturday night, yes. Uh, Sunday night will be at Union saint gilloise to cheer on a different uh, uh, yellow and uh, go, uh, yellow and blue team uh, in this in this weekend's uh, Belgian Premier League playoffs. But uh, this idea that uh, it's a song contest and not uh, and not political, uh, yes, sure. Uh, Cyprus always thinks that Greece has the best song. Greece always thinks that Cyprus has the best song. <laughs> purely, purely because uh, you know the, the shared disco culture. Uh, Vivian Wall. And I'll also be chilling around Moldova because I'll be in Chisinau at the end of the month for the European Political Community Summit, and I'd like them to be in party mood when I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> Vivian Walt, uh, your thoughts on the fact that you know, because last year there was a sort of unease. They kicked out Russia from the from, the, did, from yeah. the Eurovision Song Contest. <clears throat> Good. Uh, is it? Is it? Yes, and some made the argument, just like they do when uh, Wimbledon comes around, that uh, you shouldn't uh, penalize athletes or musicians. Uh, yes, and by the way, this is also about money, as as everything is. But, uh, you know, this is also about uh, participants paying millions of of euros We're talking to, to, high to, art to here, not money. <laughs> Pardon me. <laughs> I mean, I think the Eurovision Song Contest should go global. I think every country in the world should create some happy, dancey song and, you know, have a blowout party. I think the world needs it. <laughs> uh, Noor Ibrahim, by the way, uh, it's even made, it's seeped its way, you could say, onto the campaign trail in Turkey. Uh, Kemal Kilic-Dorolu says he'll bring Turkey back into the Eurovision Song Contest. Recep Tayyip Erdogan felt it was not of a high moral standing. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think... Everyone deserves a shot. I think the you know all of Turkey maybe shouldn't be uh, punished from this great pleasure that is uh, Eurovision for one person who might not be around for too much long after. Um, so I get that. All right, the Eurovision Song Contest, uh, uh, which may or may not uh, provide a respite uh, from uh, from uh, uh, grimmer topics in these grim 
times. Noor Ibrahim, I want to thank you so much for joining us uh, from uh, New York City. Dave Clark in uh, Brussels. Vivian Wald, Vladislav Davidson, thank you for joining us here thank in you. the world this week.